Hey, good bucks, right? Good bucks. Hopefully the uh, Browns will also win. That'd be a nice weekend sweep for Ohio this weekend. Well, this is the beginning, as Bridget said, this is the beginning of a new year. And we made it through 2020. Congratulate yourself. Let me share my favorite end of the year meme. It's from December 30th. With two days left in 2020, the meme says, we should be expecting the final plot of the series. Here's the odds so far. Four to one, alien invasion. Six to one, some sort of Godzilla-related event. Seven to one, the duck uprising. Um, If you're not sure what that is, it's something from some crazy video from 2016. And finally, a 10 to one odds that gravity just simply turns off. So those are your odds. If you made a wager on one of those, none of them happened. So you lost your money. (laughs) But seriously, Linworth, thank you for sticking together through this time and having the courage to walk through one of our most difficult years together. Thanks for staying in connection with one another. Thank you for continuing to serve. Thank you for continuing to give faithfully, though you've not, in a sense, received as much spiritual benefit. You have shown that you are giving to God first. And I just want you to know that I appreciate every one of you and love every one of you. And I know that I speak on behalf of the pastors as well, that we appreciate all of you. We love all of you. And we got through this together. And it's now a new year, and there are no guarantees. But let's see what God does. Um, His goodness will prevail. And uh, that we know. You know, speaking of us as a body, one of our couples, one of our members does need your support right now. On Friday, and you may not know her, her name is Jane Albrecht. Um, Jane's been a member here since 2007 with her husband, Dave, and uh, Dave was actually, had been in the ER, was out of the, was out of the house, he had a pain in his side, and uh, Jane fell from the top of her stairs, top of the stairs. And as you know, Jane's not, she's already uh, has quite a few health issues, and it was a, a tremendously traumatic fall. She experienced massive trauma to the brain. Uh, there are spinal injuries. Um, she is on life support, so it is extremely bad. She's not, not regained consciousness. So again, we would ask you to pray. We want to first just make you aware of that, ask you to pray for Dave and Jane. Dave certainly needs comfort and wisdom as he meets with Jane's sister to decide what to do. And of course, it's never too late to pray for Jane's healing. And if she has any consciousness to pray that the presence of Christ would fill that consciousness with himself. So let's take a moment right now, and as a body, pray together for Dave and for Jane. Father, uh, in this moment, we come together as a body, and we commit to you our friends and our brother and sister Dave and Jane Albrecht. And Lord, we don't know, we can't imagine what Dave is going through right now, the pain, the, the sense of loss of control, the desperation. We pray for him that he would experience comfort and peace through Christ Jesus. 
grace of our Lord be with him. And for Jane, Father, if she can, she has any consciousness, we pray that the presence of your Holy Spirit would fill her consciousness. Father, you can do anything. You can heal her if you desire to. We pray for Jane's healing. Father, we entrust both of them to you as members who share in the body of Christ together. Amen. 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 Appreciate the life group that has surrounded Jane. I know Pastor Mike has been involved as well with helping out. Of course, she can't be seen, but he's been ministering to Dave along the way. So appreciate all of you that have been standing with Dave and Jane. Well, let's move forward, have to move forward. Today is the beginning of a brand new year and a brand new series of messages through the book of Proverbs, a book known for its ancient and its self-evident wisdom. Now, if you knew me as a young man, and I'm not sure anybody here did, that is definitely not a trait you would have assigned to me, wisdom. I was impulsive. I was erratic. I had a lot of trouble keeping commitments. Um, Sticking to one thing and finishing it was not my strong suit. The people around me suffered from my starting, quitting, starting something new. It was a regrettable trait that affected girlfriends, sports teams, family members, and jobs and other things. I could tell you a lot of stories, and I'll probably bring some up throughout the, throughout the series about my lack of stability. My pathway was not level, and I certainly was not grounded. You would not have looked at me and said, here's a grounded person. That's what we've called this series, The Grounded Life. And today's message, particular message, is called Extraordinary Wisdom for Extraordinary Times. We are living in extraordinary times. And we are drowning in knowledge and information and scientific studies. But what do we do... What do we know to do when the experts clash? Who knows what to believe when the science, purportedly based on objective facts, leads to different conclusions? Experts fill the airways with stats and numbers and their objective research. But even if they lack an agenda, they can still only diagnose the problem. They can provide no answers on how to live meaningly, meaningfully. Who or what will guide us and what can be trusted? You know, many Christians, many Christians have not understood how to sort out and sift out truth. Often arriving at a conclusion from hearing one well-sounding, empathic, or emotional argument. Many Christians lack discernment. Information overload and the lacking discernment sets up a scenario where we need extraordinary wisdom. Here's a second reason we need extraordinary wisdom. As Christians, we know all about our destiny. The Bible speaks to where we will end up. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We understand our destiny. And yet God's voice comes to us in different ways. We actually get this 
sort of beautiful summary of how God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18, verse 18, and actually, it's uh, Jeremiah's opponents are speaking, but we get in here this summary of how God speaks. Here's what the scripture says. It says, come, let's make plans against Jeremiah, for the teaching of the law by the priest will not cease, nor will counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophets. It's interesting. A summary. God speaks us through the law. God speaks to us through the prophets. And God speaks to us through wise counsel, through wisdom. You know, through the law and through the prophets, we get a lot of the big story questions answered about who we are and why we exist. The law and the prophets make sense of those questions. But we need more. We need more. Derek Kidner said it this way. There are details of character small enough to escape the mesh of the law and the broad size of the prophets. And yet those details are decisive in personal dealings. We need wisdom. We need God's help every day in the details of our lives at a level beyond, uh, beyond hard and fast rules like what kind of person should I marry? How do I spend my money? How do I manage my time? How do I raise children? For these and questions like these, we also need extraordinary wisdom. My uh, daughter took a wedding picture. My daughter took a wedding picture from my son's wedding. It'll actually be a year ago, a year ago tomorrow. And he took that, she took that wedding picture and she had it made into a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle to give them as a Christmas present. That was pretty cool. I had never seen something like this done before. And uh, actually one little puzzle piece comprised my son's head. It was kind of funny to look at. I think our modern relationship to knowledge is something like a puzzle. We have all these little bits of knowledge, and each bit is like a puzzle piece. But what we don't know how to do in our postmodern world is to put the puzzle together. We don't know how to integrate the knowledge into a whole that is livable. We look at the individual pieces, try to arrange them in some coherent way, but we can't. Why? It's because we lack wisdom. Wisdom is the capacity to fit the individual pieces together in a way that makes sense and brings flourishing to every facet of life. T.S. Eliot, the English poet, wrote this. Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? And where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Where do we get extraordinary wisdom? The wisdom of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, will help you sort through the information overload, discerning what is true, keeping what is needed, and discarding what is not. 
This ancient wisdom will help you identify and reject irrational fears. It will help you absorb legitimate concerns, but not be overcome by them. It will help you prioritize what matters, stay balanced, producing both social concern and relational emotional stability. It is the grounded life because you can learn God's wisdom of the everyday stuff of life, of living, working, loving, and relating. Through the book of Proverbs, God counsels you and coaches you. God is not only interested in getting you to heaven, but he cares deeply you are on and the way you're walking in it, including the ordinary and the commonplace. Now, because it's so deeply practical, many people devalue the Proverbs. And yet, it is neither simplistic nor moralistic. They are more than rules. It is more than ideas for self-improvement. But to benefit from them will require multiple readings and focused reflection. The ancient wisdom from Proverbs seeks not only a mere external change, but a change of heart. Indeed, a change in the way you see the world. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 12, verse 5. It reads this. The thoughts, the thoughts, the very thoughts of the righteous are just, but the advice of the wicked is deceitful. You see, wisdom from God changes not only behaviors, it changes thoughts and outlook and motives. It reorients your very thought world. That is change from the inside out. That is character formation. You know, there's so much talk today about the pursuit of justice. What is a just society or a just individual? Well, wisdom will produce people that are just. I mean, how relevant is that? I like what Ray Ortland says about Proverbs. He says about this book, this book is not a quick fix. It is ancient wisdom from long human experience endorsed by God himself. And if we pay attention, God will graciously make us into profound people. This is the extraordinary wisdom we need for the extraordinary times that we are living in. So here's my outline for today. The long introduction to the message as well as to the series. I want to cover just three quick things, or not necessarily quick, but three substantive things in our remaining time. It'll be your outline. One, the author. Two, the audience. And three, the arrangement. Three A's. How, how clever is that? <laughs> but seriously, this background this context will help you draw the most from this study. So let's keep going and jump right into it. Who is the author? Let's learn about the author of Proverbs. It is a man named Solomon. He's not the only author, but he is the main author. Solomon was, a king, was the king of Israel for 40 years, beginning around 970 BC. He was known for his great wisdom. But where did it come from? I want us to look at two passages. So turn in your Bible or your device to 1 Kings chapter 3. 
First Kings is a history of, surprise, Israel's kings. And in chapter 3, a story is recorded of the Lord appearing to Solomon and speaking to him through a dream. And in that dream, Sol uh, the Lord asked Solomon, ask me for whatever you want me to give to you. Wow. Wow. That is the proverbial blank check. It has an echo of Aladdin's three wishes. You know, the same question is asked by Jesus on a couple of occasions. What do you want me to do for you? Now, probably everyone who's heard this story has placed themselves into Solomon's shoes and wondered, what would I ask for? Lottery? Winnings? Capacities? The perfect spouse? I know, I know. Maybe just a happy life. Nobody would fault me for that request. How did Solomon answer? Look at verse 5. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness, Lord, to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child, and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. This wisdom came from God himself. And Solomon's so humble. You know, he saw, thinking of situational awareness, Solomon saw his situation with piercing clarity. He was aware of his smallness relative to the greatness of the task. Aware that God's people were precious. They were vulnerable. Aware that he's still a young man who is called to lead them. And on top of that, he had his father, King David, whose stature was both an inspiration, but also likely a burden. He humbly says, I need wisdom more than anything else. Well, the results, God's answer was far above anything Solomon could have ever imagined. Let's look at a second passage, chapter 4, beginning in verse 29. This is an abstract summary of what God did based on that prayer. Verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else. And then he lists some names of folks who must have been reputed. 
to be very wise, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. Verse 32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard his wisdom. This is God's word. He's Bill Gates. But more. He's Brian May. But more. He's Noam Chomsky. But more. He's James Franco. But more. If you don't know some of these names, they're all reputed to be contemporary Renaissance men. Solomon was a composer, a poet, an architect, a botanist, an arborist, a sage, a judge, a politician, a statesman, and more. Solomon's wisdom went global. People streamed into Jerusalem to learn, to glean, to see. And his wisdom, his excellence, this is really cool. This is pretty cool. His wisdom and his excellence vocationally was not separated from his mission. Non-Jewish nations poured into Israel to learn from Solomon and the God of Israel. Kings and sages from all over the world got a glimpse of God's glory. More so than in any other period of Israel's history. You see, here's a cool lesson. Pursuing excellence in your vocation, pursuing creativity in your vocation, is part of, not in opposition to your witness. Solomon had an integrated view of life. He did not shut up God's truth into one little corner to make an appearance only on Sunday morning. He understood the connection of all reality to the creator God. Therefore, everything contributes to a comprehensive knowledge of life and of God. Again, Ray Ortland, he pointed out that Solomon was like, uh, was akin to Jonathan Edwards, 18th century great pastor who saw evidence of God all around him. Here's what, here's what Edwards wrote. He said, God has created lower things to be signs that pointed to higher spiritual realities. The universe then was a complex language of God. Nothing in it was accidental. Everything pointed to a higher meaning. Scripture was the key to reading the true meaning of everything else. This is the author Solomon. Solomon. Okay, let's go to the second point. And that is the audience. The audience. Who is the audience? Who's the reader? Well, the primary reader are his sons. Now, we only know of one name. He is the heir. His name is Rehoboam. But the phrase, my son are my sons, is littered all throughout the first nine chapters of Proverbs. So it's quite clear his sons are in view. The language there is urgent, it's passionate, it's vulnerable, and it's personal. The tone and feel we would expect from a parent to a child. 
Look at one example, Proverbs 4, verses 1 through 4. Solomon, again, is writing to his son. He says, listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning. Do not forsake my teaching, for I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me and he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart, keep my commands and you will live. Do you capture what's happening there? Do you capture even the generational dynamic that's there? When Solomon says, take hold of my words, these are not just Solomon's words. These are God's words and the application of God's words. And it's handed down generationally. Solomon remembers his own childhood. He's loved by his mother. Remember who his mother is? Solomon's mother is Bathsheba. And his father is David. And he's remembering how David taught him when he was still young and tender, urging him as a boy to walk with God. Now, the audience is broader than simply his son. Scholar Bruce Waltke, who may have studied Proverbs and probably understands Proverbs more than any other living person, he says that Proverbs functioned as a training for the future leaders of Israel. These were young men in their teens and in their 20s who were aspiring to royalty. Solomon knew that if the king is wise, the people will be wise. If the king is unwise, the whole nation will be led astray. So his son and future nobility, they are the audience. Let's move to the third point of our outline, the arrangement. We've done the author, we've done the audience, and finally, the arrangement. Now, I don't want to get overly technical here, but what I want to do is just give you two simple aspects of the structure of the book that will help us as we go through the book, all right? Number one, the structure of the book is very intentional. The editors were very intentional as they put this book together. The first nine chapters, chapters one through nine, are there to convince the reader that wisdom is worth pursuing. They'll say things like, get wisdom and give, give up basically everything else to get it. Go after it. Count the cost. Consider the consequence of your words, your conduct, and your values. Do a calculation. Do a meaningful cost-benefit analysis that takes your words, that takes your conduct, that takes your motives, and looks at them intentionally and reviews them and thinks about them. Are they wise? Are they foolish? Will they bring flourishing or will they bring disaster? You might be tempted to think that such calculation is for selfish reasons. But remember, the book is not just about making life upgrades or achieving serenity. It is about knowing and connecting to God in every facet of life. So that your life, so that your life, your life, so that your life is not flying in 10 different directions, but rather is a unified and integrated force with a singular focus. 
The author's very vision of wisdom presumes the princes are seeking to live within the reality of God's kingdom and not for selfish reasons. So he urges them, consider what's wise, consider what's foolish. And the first nine chapters finish with this compelling word picture. There's two women personified, the woman wisdom and the woman folly. And they provide the proverbial fork in the road and a decision is called for. The basic thinking is is that if we've not chosen wisdom by that point, Proverbs 10 through 31 will have little value to you. So having made the pitch for wisdom, then beginning in chapter 10, the actual Proverbs themselves begin. So again, let's answer the question here on our opening message. What are you talking about? What exactly is a proverb? What is it? What is it? Well, they're short sayings. They're little sound bites of proven experience. They possess a catchy cadence, easy to remember. They are pithy, meaning they say something profound in a few words. These are proverbs. There are proverbs, for example, to illustrate this, there are proverbs in our cultural lexicon that you're already familiar with. For example, I'll begin, and we're getting a little late here, so you're getting a little tired and going to get you involved. I'll begin and you finish, okay? Just shout it out. A bird in the hand is worth... A chain is only as strong... Actions speak louder... Absence makes the heart... A drowning man will clutch... Wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. A drowning man will clutch at a... Thank you, yes, at a straw. These are self-contained truths. Again, Ray Orton says this about Proverbs. Proverbs are a little model of reality, a little verbal representation of some aspect of our daily lives. They show in miniature the outworking of whether we chose wisdom or whether we chose folly. And if we're really good at it, we'll, we'll, we'll make that determination ahead of time. Yet because these proverbs connect us to the very will of God, because they go after our motives, they go after our desires, they go beyond the mere behavioral appeal of the everyday proverbs in the English language. So they're different. So that's the structure I want you to remember. What is a proverb? and 1 through 9, then 10 through 31. So what have we done this morning? Let me recap. I've tried to argue that we live in extraordinary times and we need extraordinary wisdom. And I've tried to argue that the book of Proverbs, inspired by the Holy Spirit, provides that ancient wisdom that we all desperately need. Practically, what can you do? Well, number one, just make sure you connect on Sunday morning. Connect here or connect online. Secondly, if you haven't already, consider purchasing the Tim Keller devotional on Proverbs. Now, we've sold out, but obviously they're available on Amazon, uh, uh, old-fashioned book or electronically, however you, you, you connect. But this will be life-transforming for you if you connect every day. You're reading a proverb 
every day. Louise and I have begun. We're actually still in the Psalms too, so we're, we're figuring out a way to do both. But spend time discussing the message with, or, or the devotional with friends or with family. And as you read, remember, the Holy Spirit prepared this ancient wisdom for you in 2021. And as you read, remember, these are more than Twitter feed fragments of information. Proverbs 13, 14 says, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. They're life and death. People sometimes think of the Proverbs like, this is like a, it's like a manual on how to be polite. This is like a, these are like little proverbs about how to act in an extremely proper way. And therefore, people that think that way, the proverbs are a little archaic, they're a little dusty. Friends, it's not, they're nothing, nothing even close to that. They're not even close to that. Look at how the writer describes it. It's a fountain of life, cascading, spurting, never-ending, uninterrupted. It will keep you from death. And writer just doesn't mean physical death. He means the loss of self, the loss of your true self, the loss of well-being, the loss of freedom. These words are life and death. And gaining from this wisdom will take more just got to tell you, it's going to take more than the stop, start, stop, start, short attention spans that's become our mental habits, mine included. You're going to have to treasure them. You're going to have to think deeply about them. You're going to have to return again and again to them. You're going to have to look at it from the top, look at it from below, look at it from this side, look at it from this side. They were meant for you to do that. They weren't just meant for like one superficial reading, now I've got it. No, they invite reflection. They they invite focused reflection. And finally, we need to remember that the wisdom of Proverbs has already, the wisdom of Proverbs has already been lived out and it's already been perfectly fulfilled in one life. It's been fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus said in reference to Solomon's wisdom, he said that now one greater than Solomon is here. Jesus was the wisest of all, the most genius, the most brilliant of all in his wisdom, in his integration, in his purpose. It's Matthew 12, 42. Jesus is the wisest, and he is our Messiah. He is our king. He has been anointed with a spirit of counsel, Isaiah said. A spirit of might and a spirit of counsel and a spirit of power, Isaiah 11, verse 2. Jesus counsels us, and he coaches us with wisdom. He doesn't just tell us how to get to heaven. He's our personal life coach. He counsels, meaning he knows your personal intimate situation and knows how to lead and guide you. You see, and this, by the way, I just got to qualify this. This What I'm going to say next is not just like, okay, this is really good motivational talk. 
You know, it's not really true, but it will motivate the crowd. Okay, it's not what I'm doing. Just like Proverbs was written for royalty, friends, we are royalty. We are sons and daughters of a king. Daniel and Jonathan Aiken wrote this. He said, we need to submit to his loving and wise rule so that he can produce wisdom in us. That's our only path to wisdom. Proverbs is laying out how kingdom citizens should live and what the wise king will produce in them. Friends, in the future, I talked a lot today about the, the, this is for here and now. But let's put these two, let's integrate these two ages, the age we live in and the age to come. Let's integrate them. In the age to come, we will reign with Christ. Through wisdom, we will rule the cosmos alongside of him as sons and daughters. Today, in the here and now, you are learning wisdom so that one day you can rule rightly with him. You're in training for nobility. You are being shaped for glory. Cooperate with Jesus, and he will be a fountain of life to you. You know, circling back to my own story and my own lack of wisdom, Over a long period of time, God has done a lot in my life to help shape me into the person I could have never have imagined being. I'm sure some of those old girlfriends and old employers and old classmates could never have pictured what God would do in my life. Through his grace, I've been married for 34 years. Through his grace, I've been basically at one church my entire life, pastoring in this church. God has brought very many wise people into my life to help a really immature person to grow in wisdom, to become more stable, to get a little better at fulfilling commitments, to get a little wiser. You know, the Proverbs 13, 20 says, through walking with wise men. How do we become wise? Is through walking with wise men and wise women is how we become wise. It's through the community of faith provides the kind of stability, the kind of character formation that we so desperately want and that our culture so desperately needs so that we can become to others a non-anxious presence, so that we can become to others a, a rock of stability, so that we can become to others a source of peace. That's the kind of people God wants to make you into as moms and dads, as husbands and wives, as friends to one another, as employees, and for those of you, many of you that are supervising and are, uh, you own businesses and you're managing others, God wants to turn you into a rock of stability, a non-anxious presence for them. And we can do it through learning this ancient wisdom. If he could do it with me, friends, he can do it with you as well. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you as people that are broken, 
We've been broken by our own sin. We've been broken by the sin of this world. And you have us on this journey to become whole again, to have our lives and the pieces of our lives not be divided, not be splitting, not be flying in a thousand different directions, but to bring our lives into a pure single focus before you. Father, teach us this ancient wisdom. Teach us this ancient wisdom, how desperately the world needs today men and women of stability, of character, of emotional solidity. And Father, we know we will fail, and we know before you and often before one another, we feel anything but that. But we pray that you'd change us and transform us and make a difference in our lives. We pray that we could reject, Lord, fears that don't come from you. We pray, Father, that we could reject stories and theories that are crazy and wild and, and, and lack really any evidence. We could become thinking people, people that, are, that, that understand credulity. Father, help us in this age of information to know what to believe and who to trust. Father, help us to be a community because we need each other in this and we won't be perfect and we will fail. And we need grace. All of us need grace in this, Father. I need grace in this. But we pray that you'd lead us over time we know that won't be a quick fix. We know we won't become wise men and women overnight, but we can start the journey today. We can start the journey today towards wisdom, towards walking on a level path. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name and through the power of the Holy Spirit. In his name, Father, for your glory and our good, we pray. Amen. 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 All right, let me close up here. Thank you for being here this morning and journeying together, starting this new year and starting this new series and beginning down this pathway of wisdom. Um, I want to, again, remind you that you can give online. There's also a couple of boxes in the lobby. We really appreciate how much you've been supporting us through this really challenging time. And I do want to say, hey, friends, just, again, remember, um, during the fellowship time afterwards, uh, these are required... <laughs> We're asking you to wear these during the fellowship time. You don't have to stay, but if you stay, please wear this. And I do want to say this. Don't do it for me, right? But do it for those who do have health vulnerabilities or a loved one does, and yet they need to be here in in-person fellowship. Friends, it doesn't follow the value of our community to simply tell them to stay home. There are people that are on the line, and because of the protocols we've set in place, they are here in person. And so again, you know, it's all based on trust. Our relationship with you, yours with us, and yours with others is all based on trust. And certainly trust is built as we agree to and follow the protocols we set in place. So these are needed and required uh, during this fellowship time. Of course, you're, you can go outside. They're not required out there, obviously, but in here in the building. Uh, particularly during this fellowship time, they are, they are required. Okay, do you stand, please, for a final blessing? And I've chosen Philippians chapter 1. It seems to be the perfect prayer of Paul to go along with our Proverbs series. And this is my prayer, 
that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Amen. Go in, go in peace.